Future City is sponsored by Prudential. Bring your challenges. Funding for Future City is also provided by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. When we think of cities of the future, many of us are still thinking of the Jetsons. If the cars aren't flying, they're at least self-driving. We imagine cities buzzing with tech-savvy urbanites, well-connected via automated buses and sleek moving walkways. But smart cities, connected, cutting-edge urban environments, are already here. And they don't necessarily look like Orbit City. Smart cities are invested in relationships, relationships between government institutions and universities, between creators and the consumers of data. Ensuring cities of the future are cities of equity and opportunity. This show is dedicated to understanding what a smart city looks like and how we here in Baltimore can ensure we remain on top of these increasingly essential innovations. We'll look to Seattle, Seattle, Washington, an example for how a city can embrace innovation and capture big data in a comprehensible, actionable way. But first, we'll try to understand where the concept of smart cities even came from and how our model of comfortable, equitable urban living is evolving. Our first guest today is Ben Levine. He's the executive director of Metro Lab Network, a city-university collaborative focused on urban innovation. Ben, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So, Ben, let's start by understanding a bit more of what Metro Lab Network does. It was created in 2015 as part of the White House's Smart Cities Initiative. Can you tell us a bit more about the initiative and how the network was created? Sure. So, taking a step back, Metro Lab was, uh, was formed out of recognition that we need to figure out a way of driving local government innovation. And if you think about it, companies have a mechanism to drive uh, innovation and research and development. They either invest in their own, uh, in their own R&D activities or they buy companies that, uh, that develop innovative technologies. And the federal government also has a mechanism to invest in R&D and innovation, whether that's through uh, programs they fund, direct research grants, or agencies that are, that are focused specifically on innovation. We launched Metro Lab out of the White House Smart Cities Initiative as a mechanism to say, hey, how can local governments drive similar innovation? And one solution was this idea that universities, in partnership with their communities, could actually become research and development hubs. And Metro Lab kind of establishes a, uh, a type of model that we like to see between city or county and university that uh, allows both university faculty and local government officials to co-create research and development and deployment projects, and also fosters a community of practitioners, really entrepreneurs from the local government and uh, academic sectors that like to collaborate on, on innovative and new activities. So another, another thing that I want to ask about the definition of is the definition of a smart city. Uh, you know, when people think about smart cities, you know, oftentimes their mind immediately goes to technology. But what is your definition of a smart city? You're right in framing the question that, you know, there's so many definitions of smart city. I was once at an event where someone said that they looked it up and found 100 different definitions. <laughs> the way I see it, a smart city is a city that integrates existing and new sources of data to improve services, infrastructure, livability, and quality of life for residents. And what I mean by existing and new sources of data is that 
cities are already generating massive, massive amounts of data, whether it's transportation-related data or education data or human services data. And there's certainly an opportunity, even just with existing sources of data, to have a better picture of what's happening across the community by, by integrating those data sources. When I talk about new sources of data, I'm talking about probably what's often considered the, quote, smart city space, the use of sensors and video analytics to drive new insights and, and, and uh, gather new data about, say, transportation or energy or air quality. When those two pieces are put together, I think you really achieve what I would frame as a smart city, a smart city which is broader than just transportation or information communication technology and really encapsulates uh, all elements of city government, whether that is the delivery of human services or a community's walkability or the education system. Well, I think it's, it's important for people to understand that you're leaving data, footprints, fingerprints, whatever you want to call it, all the time. Uh, you know, every time that you enter out in public, when you're turning on televisions, when you're, I mean, when you're, when you're, when you're using a Metro card or whatever the case might be, you're leaving data Foot fingerprints everywhere that you go that, that we now have not just access to, but then how exactly do you utilize that data to be able to pull together frameworks that can actually, uh, you know, benefit a, a larger city structure? Yeah, there's a reason, I think, why the companies that we interact with most, uh, and by we, I mean all of us in our personal lives, whether it's Google or Facebook or, uh, or Amazon, there's a reason why those companies are valuable, and it's because data is valuable. And local governments should also be thinking about their data as a valuable resource and as a strategic asset. And we're seeing that more and more. And uh, with local governments, there's sort of a, a dual mandate both to make data that should be public publicly available. That's been seen in this whole open data movement. But I think there's also a uh, responsibility to be stewards of data when it's uh, perhaps even when it's sensitive uh, data, but to, to think about how data impacts people's lives and think about the use of that data strategically to improve services or uh, improve uh, the the quality and, and accuracy of the way that uh, services are delivered. So when you think about cities that are then actively partnering with the universities, what cities are really taking advantage of this partnership and this relationship? Where do you see this working? So, you know, I think we're seeing it in, uh, there, there's a first layer, which is kind of the cities that, that first come to mind when we think about urban innovation, the Seattle's and Boston's and New York's and Chicago's of the world. Um, but I think there's also places that are uh, maybe not uh, the sort of big metropolises that, uh, that come to mind. So South Bend and uh, the University of Notre Dame have fostered an incredible partnership in no small part due to the vision and leadership of their mayor, Pete Buttigieg. And that is a community that, uh, that I think looks and feels a little different than, uh, than the Bostons of the world. But, uh, but South Bend and Notre Dame have, have structured a partnership that touches a lot of elements of, of local government activity. Another example is the partnership between the city of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh, where uh, Carnegie Mellon's worked on a number of really interesting transportation-related projects, and the University of Pittsburgh has worked on a bunch of data-related activities. So I think that there are the, the usual players, and then there's places like Burlington, Vermont, uh, who, or Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Nashville. So I think there's a, really a diversity of places that come to mind. What makes a city ready uh, when, when you're when you're looking at and you're examining and doing diligence on, you know, whether a city can become another Chattanooga, whether a city can become another another South Bend, uh, another Seattle? What are the things that you think have to be in place in order for that city to be successful? Well, 
I'll speak to this in the context of a partnership between a city and university. So I think there's ingredients at both institutions. At the city level, there has to be people who, uh, who work in local government who have a responsibility on data and technology-related activities, who sit across departments, who have sway with the mayor, who actually can get things done um, uh, basically across departments. And that person needs to be invested in the idea of creating new knowledge about the way that their systems work and creating efficiencies and driving innovation. So, so last question, Ben. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned places like Notre Dame. You mentioned places like Carnegie Mellon. You mentioned places like Johns Hopkins. Uh, what about the non-research universities? What about the community colleges? What about the other state schools? What about the schools that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, kind of in, in the, uh, the ones who are in that, in that U.S. News and World Report top tier? What role do they play? In this conversation, yeah, you know, I think that uh, they certainly play a, a tremendous role. Our organization happens to have a bias, uh, not necessarily intentionally, but just in terms of the, the the founders who, the founding members of our organization and the folks who have signed on towards the larger institutions. But there's no question that non-traditional universities, smaller universities, community colleges, technical schools, all have a role to play in uh, in this ecosystem. Think about. Uh, one, of the, one of the big issues that you see in clean technology around the need to develop a workforce that can work in, uh, in clean energy, the same exists in smart cities. I think that increasingly, as you see in industry, uh, emerge around uh, sensor devices and uh, video analytics approaches, there's going to be a need for vocational training programs that ensure that we have a workforce that can uh, address those issues. With, with universities in, in maybe non-urban or rural communities, there's a need to translate expertise that might be uh, limited to some of the bigger cities to small areas. So I think that uh, land-grant institutions and, uh, and the, their county extension offices, which are uh, the offices that exist in nearly every county in the country, have an important role to play in ensuring that there's an equal opportunity spread of good ideas. We've been speaking with Ben Levine, who's the executive director of Metro Lab Network. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. With the evolution of smart cities comes smart jobs. Kate Garman, Seattle's first ever smart city coordinator, on the vision she has for innovative cities of the future. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Hey, we're back. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Now that we've looked at smart cities from a broad perspective, we're now going to focus in on one city that is thoroughly invested in the idea of smart urban living, Seattle. The city just hired their first ever smart city coordinator, Kate Garman, who is on the phone with us now. Kate, thank you so much for making the time, and congratulations on the job. Wes, thank you. It's good to be here today. So before we talk about what you're doing in Seattle, let's learn a bit about your own background. Smart City is a pretty new concept, but did you ever imagine that you'd be the person with the title of Smart City Coordinator? Uh, no. Um, there's no way five years ago, even three years ago, I thought that this would be the job I'd be having. Um, Smart City is a pretty new concept, and it's 
ever-evolving even still. I think when people talk about it, the, one of the first things they discuss is the very definition of it. Mm. So when you have a title with a definition that people still kind of, you know, argue and uh, debate, it's an interesting time to be working for a city. So when you looked at Seattle and you realized that this was a city that was actually ready to be a smart city or making moves towards being a smart city, what are the things that you saw? What did that mean to you? That's a great question. I think it. I think... The notion of a smart city is really exciting, and it's a paradigm shift of how a city really works with its residents and visitors. It's a way to be proactive, and Seattle, as it turns out, one of my very first things to do here on the job was to assess current projects and what we could qualify as a smart city project, and there are actually quite a few more than I even realized having looked at Seattle before I came here, and so it's really a way to how are we across departments doing projects now under a smart city scope? And then how do we amplify that? How do we work together across departments to really think um, in a proactive sense with data? And that's what Seattle is really looking to do, particularly as we are in a huge time of growth. 57 people move here a day, and our population within the city is we, we can't build fast enough. Hmm. And so smart growth it's a huge priority to the city, and that's what we can use Smart City uh, work to do. Well, because if you think about that level of growth, uh, there it's difficult to see how you're going to accommodate for that level of growth unless you're actually putting some of these Smart City capacities in place to be able to both prepare for it and to be able to then actually live in it. Absolutely. And really, it's a way to, there's two audience generally, at least I think of it. One is your audience inside your city, how people use your operations on a day-to-day basis. How can we change intersection signals to prioritize a full bus versus an empty bus? Um, And then your second audience are your residents and visitors. How can we better communicate to people who are on our streets, moving around, who are using the city on a day-to-day basis? Um, and surely, you know, there's a lot of conversation on our smartphones and how it can deliver information, but it's beyond that. It's how to think of it in a really socially uh, responsible and social equity way. How do we reach these technologies to underserved portions of the community and neighborhoods that don't see these technologies first? So we can really lift the whole city and, and everyone here. So. That's, that's the way that we're going to have smart growth. So the, the, the really interesting thing, Kate, is that your job, your job title, your job description, if you would have talked to somebody 10 years ago, they would have looked at you like you were crazy. They would have looked at you like, I'm not even sure what you're talking about, about a smart city coordinator. 20 years from now, 10 years from now, uh, will you find a growing city without one? I would be shocked if that were the case, honestly. I think that... This is, a, this is a movement that is not slowing down. Uh, this, and Seattle was very strategic, I think, in their timing. Um, there have been titles of all kinds across the country growing at cities, chief innovation officers, chief data officers, um, chief performance officers. And I think cities are really growing in terms of the scope that they work on. Cities are no longer an entity that paves your roads and picks up your trash. And cities have to be really smart. And uh, due to, uh, you know, federal laws slowing down and and nothing is really getting passed, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's a fact that the past few congressional sessions are just not producing much um, support. And so cities are really stepping up and providing this, and they're doing it in a very proactive way. And I would be shocked in 20 years to see 
cities not looking at someone to help coordinate these efforts to look at public Wi-Fi as infrastructure, for example, or thinking of privacy and data policies for their citizens. Cities have never thought of this before. It's all new. And I think it will continue to grow as the years pass. So, Kate, before I let you go, I, I, I want to acknowledge the issue of privacy when it comes to data sharing. How can we ensure that people's private information is being kept safe? I, I know that people are incredibly careful about their data, how it's being used, how it's being shared. Is it being manipulated? Manipulated? Are people willing to sacrifice their personal information for the sake of a more connected, data-driven city? That is something that we have yet to see. Uh, Seattle is a leading city in the country for privacy. We have a chief privacy officer here, Ginger Armbruster, who ensures that at every step of our projects, that is a consideration. But stepping back and looking at the fundamental legal principle of privacy with the Fourth Amendment, generally laws have been made on this quote-unquote expectation of privacy. Where does someone expect privacy in society? And that's generally where our laws have given protection. And so if there's a exchange, that's where we're seeing an evolution of privacy. So for instance, I'm willing to accept these terms and conditions on my phone in exchange for Wi-Fi at a coffee shop. Uh, you can see what I'm doing on my phone, but I'm getting the benefit of Wi-Fi. What happens there with expectation of privacy if you're opting in? Is it truly informed consent? Um, these are questions that the lawyers and the legal sector will have to address. Um, and when we're doing it in a proactive sense with the city of Seattle, we are not even going to collect data that can threaten um, exposing personally identifiable information. So it's at the point of collection. We don't even want to filter it later if we're collecting it at all and it's a risk to your private identity being exposed. We stop right there. It's interesting. I think about even on my uh, on, on my personal life access, all these things that have, uh, you know, eight pages of small numbers and lettering, and at the end say, do you accept? And I just push yes without even thinking about what it means. Uh, and so there, there are a lot of questions around that that I think you're absolutely right that we still have to sort through. Exactly. Totally agree. Well, you're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore, and we've been talking with Seattle's first ever smart city coordinator, Kate Garman. Kate, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Wes. Today on the show, we've been exploring smart cities, the innovations that are driving these hyper-connected urban environments, and the partnerships making this all possible. The university is an institution that historically has been accused of being out of touch, of producing research in an isolated ivory tower. But many universities are changing that narrative. The University of Washington has recently partnered with the city of Seattle to ensure that big data connects with big ideas. Here to tell us more about that is Bill Howe, the Associate Professor in the Information School at the University of Washington. Bill, it is great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Fantastic to be here. Thank you. So first, can you explain what you do at the Information School, what classes you teach, and how did you become involved in this smart city movement? Absolutely. So my PhD is in computer science, and I work on databases. And specifically, I've been working on databases for all fields of science for quite a long time. But in the last few years, I've gotten really interested in the social sciences and specifically in the uh, in, in an urban context, and that's really been my focus. That's well aligned with what we do at the Information School, which has a variety of strategic initiatives, but one of which is data science for social good. So that lines, that lines right up. And so in your mind, what is the role that the university plays in creating a smart city? So I think the university's role has traditionally been, you know, to take a bit of a longer view and put things into a 
a context of what's you know, been tried before as opposed to, you know, across all cities uh, and what we sort of know at the state of the art. But, uh, you know, as you pointed out in the intro, I, I think that leads to a bit of a distance between what works in practice and what sort of gets the paper published in the, in the relevant journals. And I think there's a pendulum's kind of swinging back where universities are recognizing that they need to step up and play a, 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 a deeper role in what people are doing in the next three months as opposed to the next, you know, 30 years. And I think what's really interesting, too, is, you know, when you think about smart cities, and I know for you, being a, a smart city is all about connectivity. Uh, you know, I think when people hear that term, they think of smartphones and they think getting a good Wi-Fi signal. Um, but, but it's more than that, right? What does a connected city look like to you? I think it's a, a, a great point to make. You know, connectivity does sort of connote network connectivity in some mind. I, in my mind, uh, it's about the data. And so the fact that you're collecting data at some agency or, or municipally funded, you know, NGO that's helping homeless families – you know, you want to put that together, that data together with uh, the, say, criminal justice data so that you can coordinate on the best way to provide care and services to citizens, whether there's, you know, an arrest warrant or whether there's a, a, a opioid addiction problem or whether there's, uh, you know, a joblessness or whether there's, you know, substance abuse issues and so on. There's a there's a idea of sort of precision services for citizens, but you can't do that without that kind of data level con connectivity. And that's one of the things that we're trying to uh, uh, promote. Well, we here at Future City appreciate the mission of taking good ideas in one place and figuring out ways to applying it to others. Uh, and what kind of things have you seen? What have been some of the, uh, some of the early takeaways that you've seen from, uh, from Cascadia Urban An An Analytics Cooperative? So we ran this, we, we, here at the University of Washington, we've had this data science for social good program for a few years. And one of the things we had said to Microsoft that we were interested in doing was helping, helping UBC spin up their version of it. And we did that this summer. And one of the nice things we saw was that, you know, of course, transportation and traffic and th things like this are of interest in every city. And so there's a couple of teams um, at UBC that looked into this, where they hoovered up all the uh, open data around um, rapid transit and bus routes and did sort of analysis of equity and an analysis of performance and, and so on. Meanwhile, at the University of Washington, there's a team that looked at the card swipe data that I mentioned, as well as some uh, traffic count data from these Bluetooth sniffers, and answered questions like, you know, do we have equitable access of, of buses in Seattle? Uh, and can we can we estimate how much total traffic downtown is uh, is due to uh, circling for parking and rideshare companies essentially deadheading you know waiting for rides and that number turns out to be you know maybe roughly roughly 30 percent but the fact that these two different teams are kind of in the same domain as well as have kind of the same program format means that we can kind of share ideas back and forth and so we're already talking about how to bring some of the some of the work that we did at the University of Washington and. and apply it, it uh, up in Vancouver uh, and vice versa. And so we've had a couple of meet and greets between the students and there's some collaboration starting that way. So that's, that's the kind of process by which we imagine this, this kind of regional, these regional results to, to emerge. We've been talking with Bill Howe, the Associate Professor at the University of Washington. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Wes. After the break, we'll look at how Baltimore has adopted the idea of university city partnerships to develop smart city initiatives. What's working and the challenges ahead. That's next. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges.
Hey, we're back. You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Today on the show, future cities are smart cities, cities that connect data to innovation, ensuring a connected, efficient urban environment. So how's that working in Baltimore? We'll talk with two leaders at Johns Hopkins University, leading different facets of the smart city initiative and the smart city movement. First, we'll speak with Beth Blauer, who's the executive director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Government Excellence. Beth, it is great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, So, Beth, we're going to be talking with your colleague at Hopkins, Ben Siegel, in a little bit, and we'll discuss with him some of Baltimore-specific projects. But you're doing projects all over the country dealing with these very issues. Um, Can you describe what you do at the center in relation to the development of smart cities? Sure. So um, we're a completely new center on campus. Well, new, if you consider two and a half years new. I consider it fairly new in a startup phase. Um, And we were launched by a very generous um, uh, grant from Bloomberg Philanthropies to help support their What Work Cities initiative. And the What Work Cities initiative um, has been working with mayors of mid-sized cities all across the United States, helping them understand how they can better use data and evidence to influence decision-making and to have an impact in the cities where they're leading. And the work that we're doing at GovX is really trying to understand what the landscape looks like. So we've been to north of 100 cities where we've essentially sort of been gathering sort of baseline data around how equipped cities are to actually use data and to actually make that data have an impact on policy areas that are important, not just to mayors, but also to people that live in those cities. And then we also are providing technical assistance in those cities. So building systems where data can be responsibly collected, where it can be um, connected to things that are important, and then helping mayors set priorities around the things that they want to deliver um, and making a connection between those outcome areas and the data that they're collecting. And those projects, you know, are really policy focused. So focused on the things that are most important to people that are living in cities like access to housing, access to resources, infrastructure. Um, And when we talk about smart cities, a lot of the work that we're doing is around the data production has really increased. So how can cities leverage the data production that's increased because of the deployment of sensors, the deployment of cameras, the deployment of all the sort of trappings that we associate with smart cities? But how do we actually let that information that's being collected by those mechanisms influence policy. So when you you go into a city and you do an examination uh, about whether or not they are ready to go through the process to become a smart city in that way, I'm sure you have a certain rubric. I'm sure you have certain frameworks that you look for for those individual cities. How has that changed? How How have those frameworks or benchmarks changed as you've now seen more and more cities and you've seen where cities are versus where you want to get them to? Yeah, I mean, it is a movement. So when we first started off, we, we, we certainly walked into cities where we were starting at zero, where there had been no thoughtfulness given to centralized you know, data thinking. Um, mayors knew that they needed to think about data in the sort of um, administration of their duties, um, but that they had no real way of like pointing to how that was actually happening in reality, um, which for me was the, probably one of the biggest surprises. Um, having sort of been entrenched in a data culture, I think I was a little blind to the fact that there were some cities, particularly cities that are like fundamentally under-resourced, um, that uh, just hadn't like just hadn't had the capacity to actually even think from a strategic perspective how data can influence decision making. Um, 
one thing that I have noticed over the last two and a half years is that that's changing. We're very we're very seldomly now walking into a situation where mayors and senior teams don't already have placed or haven't already placed a high value on data. Um, and that's because I think this is, you know, largely because of this effort has been sort of the, the idea has been to be momentum building and to create, you know, the, the need for it. But also because I go on my phone and, you know, before I buy a pair of sneakers, I'm looking at like six different vendors who sell that same pair of sneakers. I'm getting tons of information about how the sneakers are made, where they're coming from, where, where I can get them for cheapest, you know, what colors they come in. And, and people are expecting to also access government and services in the same way. And because the public perception of how we should be using technology and how we should be thinking about decision making is so has shifted dramatically and continues to evolve at these rapid rates, government can't afford to not start to make those connections in the way that they are also connecting with people that live in their communities. And to be honest, I mean, it's, it's happening already on so many different frames. I mean, to take take the example you just mentioned about your sneakers, right? Where as you, before you look to buy a sneaker, you're doing research, you're seeing where the sneakers are made, you're comparing, so on and so forth. And in addition to that, there are a bunch of people who are then feeding you their advertisements on right. their sneakers because they know you're in the market for sneakers. So this is something that's happening in a variety of different elements in our own lives as we speak. Right. And so if you think about that, when we start to relate it to government services or the delivery of those services, um, if you are um, if you are living in a city and um, you are having difficulties getting your trash collected, you're not going to the city website to, you know, lodge a 311 complaint right off the bat. You're going onto Facebook and saying, like, anyone else in my neighborhood not have their trash collected? Or once again, my trash hasn't been collected. Yes. And so cities are now realizing that they can't wait for inbound feedback from the community, that they have to do more active social listening. They have to rely on the same types of instrumentation that the public is using to influence decision making. And um, we're, you know, trying to also help them evolve these 21st century skills as we're also thinking about the resources that are being developed or that are being um, created by data that government itself is producing so that you can say, oh, not just accessing that information, but bringing real actual solutions into those conversations. So the tracker says that the truck was in your neighborhood at this time. Where is your trash out at this time on the curb? If not, let's help you like file that 311 complaint. Um, and so we're seeing the government have to make that sort of shift or pivot from fielding only inbound requests for service, fielding only inbound requests for change to actually entering into public conversations that are organically happening in our communities. And it's a shift that is not always so easy to do. Have you seen examples of cities that you thought were were ready for this level of transformation that you thought were ready for uh, an injection of these new type of tools, technology, et cetera? And it just didn't work. Uh, there were certain things, there were certain disconnects that were there that made it less successful than you would have hoped. So there's definitely challenges in every city that we've gone to do this work in. So there isn't one city that's just like we've packed up our bags and left and said, like, there's no way we're going to be able to have an impact. Um, but there are definitely challenges to the work itself. And the challenges come in the form of uh, cultural challenges. So, you know, the government has developed a culture sometimes of getting in the way of itself, where um, the it's really difficult for um, for the, you know, 
for change to happen because people that have been in government for a long time, the people who really know how to solve the problems and the really, in my opinion, the innovators in government um, have been sort of like uh, um, uh, really mistreated by change, right? So you've got new administrations that roll over, new ideas. They're fatigued by change. Um, and sometimes they sort of clamp down. And if you don't, if you don't make a connection uh, to why people are drawn to the public service, and if you don't invest in people that work in the public service, then they can be some of the biggest barriers to your success and specifically to the success of big changes that smart city innovations really bring into the environment of a city. It seems like one of the, one of the core prerequisites for a smart city is a basic element of trust. Right, so a trust amongst isn't that every relationship? Isn't that every? I guess I guess that is the baseline of every single relationship, and smart city implementation is no different. Exactly. You got to have trust, right? Yep. So we do know though that there are not just you know actual practical deficits that exist within communities, but there are trust deficits that exist in the community, and many of them are completely founded and understandable. How exactly do you use smart cities? And using smart city implementation actually is a way of actually being able to build up a level of trust in communities. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to bring a level of honesty to the conversation. You know, one of the things that we talk a lot about in our work is that a lot of the data systems that government rely on to make decisions right now are are the systems that grew up um, protecting or nurturing, for lack of a better word, um, massive disparities in the way that services are allocated, the way that resources are invested. Um, and there are major inequities in the systems themselves. And if you don't talk about that honestly, and if you don't um, bring a ton of intentionality into the approach that you take to your work, then you are going to continue a tradition of nurturing those inequities. And so uh, the promise or the, you know, the, the, the um, opportunity that new systems bring is that you can design new systems in a way that they don't um, replicate the mistakes that systems that, you know, sustained institutional racist policies in our governments that kept the poor poor, that kept the rich rich. We can we can overcome that by thinking differently about the way that we perceive the use of data and the way that we architect these systems. Um, but you can't do that unless you talk about it, unless you're honest with yourselves about it, unless you go back and you do the hard work of identifying those systems that are in place that have protracted these issues. And I find it fascinating the fact that you're you are now uh, again, you guys are on fire when you think about the growth of the amount of cities that you're working with, um, but that you're also coming, you're not coming from the government perspective either. Uh, it kind of shows the importance of collaboration in these conversations. Yeah, I think, you know, especially sort of up against the national landscape of very changing sort of erratic policy changes that we're seeing at the federal level, mm -hmm. we need people like Mike Bloomberg who can keep us focused on how to evolve a government in the 21st century that can actually meet the needs of the people that are living in our cities um, and meet the needs of the people that are working in our cities um, and to really think differently about how we sustain ourselves as a people. We're not going to get that right now. Um, I, I, you know, At least it's yet to be seen how we're going to really achieve that um, collectively at other levels of government. But I do think that cities are a place where um, people are drawn to because they are, are passionate about um, the sustainability of culture, the sustainability of our people, the sustainability of our sort of uh, ecological assets. Um, and then there are, you know, philanthropists that are coming in and they're really 
trying to continue the momentum of innovation instead of stifling it. And we need people like Beth Blower. <laughs> You're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore, and we've been talking with Beth Blower, the Executive Director of the Center for Government and Excellence at Johns Hopkins University. Beth, it is great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So today we've been looking at how smart city innovation is working here in Baltimore and seeing how Baltimore-based experts are using a broad approach to big data to work with government officials around the country. Now, let's see how those innovations are working at home. And to continue that conversation, we're going to speak with Ben Siegel, the executive director of the 21st Century Cities Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. Ben, it is great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So first of all, can you tell us a bit about your role at the 21st Century Cities Initiative and how that differs also from what Beth is doing? Sure. As you mentioned, I'm the executive director of the 21st Century Cities Initiative, or as we like to call ourselves, 21CC. And we are a separate and stand-apart initiative from Beth's project, which is the Center for Government Excellence, or GovX. But our work obviously overlaps and, and is interconnected in many ways. Uh, First of all, at 21CC, we are particularly interested in innovative urban policies and programs across three broad domains. Uh, First is economic inclusion and equity. Second is mixed income and integrated neighborhoods. And third is healthy and safe neighborhoods. And now, while Beth's work and, and her team at GovX, they're very much focused on technical assistance, training, capacity building with cities on how to use data to make to, to inform decision making. At 21CC, we are focused more on research and convening. And I often like to kind of compare the, the work of GovX and 21CC in that GovX is kind of a, a mile wide and an inch, maybe a little more than an inch deep. They're in many cities uh, touching a, a lot of folks. And, and at 21CC, we're, we're kind of a, an inch wide, but a mile deep. And a lot of our work is very much focused in Baltimore City, although we are too national. Um, just to talk through our research and convening work. On the research side, we focus on short-term applied research projects that are performed by teams of Hopkins faculty and researchers who are working with city agencies or other organizations on a specific policy, or a programmatic challenge or some other line of inquiry in one of those three areas I mentioned. And the intent of this applied research is to yield information, data, findings, recommendations uh, that our applied partners, our city agencies, can put into use in their policies and programs. And on the convening side, we look to bring together diverse stakeholders, both here in Baltimore, but also across the country, to discuss our research and policy findings, uh, challenges, solutions, but also to get ideas from what's going on in in other uh, areas on research and policy um, and to inform our own research agenda. Um, And in addition, we, we are very focused on convenings that can facilitate new research and policy partnerships between city leaders and city experts. And and it comes back to GovX in that we work with them on a couple of of areas. One is we partner on doing an annual symposium here in Baltimore with GovX. This year, our symposium is going to be December 4th and 5th downtown at the Marriott Renaissance. And what we do with our, our national symposium is we bring together about 250 city leaders and experts from across the country, including a number of the cities in the GovX network, to talk about some of the latest policy research, smart cities work going on across the country. And then we'll also work with that GovX network of cities 
who are interested in doing some of the deeper level academic research that we do through 21CC. So when you, when you do some of your deep dive work, specifically when it comes to Baltimore, you came to Baltimore and started working specifically on this issue. You used to work for the Obama administration. Mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, and after the unrest uh, a few years back is when you really started drilling deep on Baltimore. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that you noticed about Baltimore that were different and unique and distinct than what you saw from some of the other places you were looking into? Sure. So Baltimore is an interesting case study in that there are some, you know, amazing opportunities here. You know, we we have an amazing uh, economic foundation with our eds, meds and feds, our financial services, our budding advanced manufacturing and technology industries. But, you know, more so than I think in, in many other cities, we have deep pockets of inequality, as, as we all know. And, and um, you know, our, our spoils are, are not kind of shared equally across Baltimore City. And that's something that's very apparent, obviously, in just traveling through the city. And one of the other challenges that, that you know, we notice in, in our work with Baltimore is, um, you know, and this is no secret, there's a lot of silos here. You know, we, we have a lot of good uh, organizations uh, across the city in philanthropy and government and the private sector. Uh, but historically, we've struggled here to connect the dots and, and to work together. Um, and, and so that's something that, um, you know, when I was in the Obama administration, we were working with the city on. I know that's something that is a big focus of our, our current mayor and, um, and a lot of stakeholders across the city. So when you think about the fact that Baltimore is still a, a very, it's, it's a divided city mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 the ways that you, in the ways that you laid out. Uh, you think about the fact that the the economic disparity in Baltimore is still real, uh, and also how that overlaps with with race. How do you see the work that you're doing now helping to create? How does it help to create a more socially conscious and a more equitable city than we have right now? Yeah, I mean that's a really important question, and and you know one of the one of what I would say that the, of the challenges of the smart cities movement is that we don't often use the terms equitable and socially conscious when we're talking about smart cities. Uh, You know, I think there's a lot of definitions of smart cities, but in general, when we talk about smart cities, we're talking about the measured city. You know, if you can measure it, you can manage it. We're talking about, you know, high tech things like IoT sensors for monitoring activity across the city. We are often talking about open data and citizen empowerment, uh, but it tends to be more from an access to services and from an efficiency standpoint, you know, and, and the big kind of buzzword with smart cities is that it, it tends to focus on government systems and how they can become more efficient through data. And it's less focused on equity, which is kind of the other side of the coin. And, and at 21CC, we are interested with our research of trying to build into this smart cities movement a, a kind of component or, or a big component around around equity, around how can we do data, how can we do research uh, that that yields, you know, equitable outcomes for cities that can do things like help to close the racial wealth gap in cities like Baltimore. And and we we're trying to do this in, in a couple ways. You know, one is certainly the the areas of research that we're focused on, you know, economic inclusion and equity, mixed income neighborhoods, healthy and safe neighborhoods. That that's obviously all speaks to uh, you know these issues. In addition, our research isn't just big data analytics. While that is part of what we're doing, we are doing the, you know, the the kind of the talk of the town as it relates to data analytics and big data. 
we are also interdisciplinary in, in our work. And, and a lot of our projects rely on good old fashioned shoe leather ethnography. You know, we have sociologists who are working in neighborhoods, uh, speaking to residents, understanding how policies are impacting them. And, and that's a, a big focus of ours. And in, in how can you, uh, you know, integrate, if you will, uh, kind of the, the qualitative and the ethnography with the data analytics. And then finally, our, our convenings. They're very much intended to create a space where we can bring together uh, the research community, the policymaking community with residents, with citizens, with advocates, with activists to talk about the latest policies and the latest research and, and to get ideas, to get input on how the work that we're doing uh, can be responsive to needs around equity and, and social consciousness. What's interesting, when you think about, uh, when you think about researchers, when you think about uh, people who will look at things on a long-term basis, their lens generally tends to be decade-long lens, generational lenses. One of the challenges and criticisms of governments, uh, whether they be city, city governments, state governments, federal governments, is that they generally don't have as long of a tail. They generally are thinking in spurts of whether it's two or four or six years, depending on uh, term, uh, depending on their on their term. Mm -hmm. How exactly do we square that? Yeah, it's interesting because I've been on the government side where I've lived in that world. I'm now on the university side where we think more in decades and generations <laughs> and even yeah. centuries in That's some right. cases. <laughs> That's right. So I think part of what's interesting about the the city-university partnerships is we're looking to find the middle ground there. So uh, just as it relates to our research, it's applied and it's short term. So we're focused on how can you take research models that we've typically applied for, you know, eight-year longitudinal, 10, 15-year studies and, and kind of truncate them down into six to 18-month research projects that can yield real policy results and, and smart policies for cities. And so, uh, you know, I think cities are always going to have to, you know, operate on those two, four-year time limits. But part of the, the question is, can we make those shorter time limits much more informed and smarter? And that's what we're trying to do with our research. So, so Ben, I want to wrap up with a question. I want you to fill in the, this, this sentence for me. Uh, I'm excited for the short and midterm future of Baltimore because? I'm excited for the short and midterm of Baltimore because, one, I think we've recognized in this city that we have to partner and work together. It's been amazing over the past year and a half I've been at Hopkins and certainly the past three plus years I've been working directly in Baltimore to see the, the effort that's being put into place by the private sector the public sector, philanthropic sector, and nonprofits and, and communities to to solve our challenges together. Uh, that that's one. Second, we we have so many amazing uh, things going on here in Baltimore. You know, when you think of our our identity, who we are, right? Baltimore is often it's the hard scrabble blue collar town, or it's the town of the wire. Well, you know what? We're also the town of cybersecurity. We're also the town of biotech. We're also the town of uh, half of our business owners are people of color. You know, we have amazing assets in this town and amazing people. And sure, we have challenges, uh, but you know, we are, this, this city is doing so much of the innovative work on data-informed practice, on research, on community engagement, uh, that I, I feel that there's 
you know, that there's a lot of uh, good things that are coming to Baltimore over the next few years. We've been speaking with Ben Siegel, who's the executive director of the 21st Century Cities Initiative at the Johns Hopkins University. Ben, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to thank all of our guests for a great conversation and another fantastic episode of Future City. Before we close, I just want to leave with a couple of thoughts. If you ask 100 people what a smart city is, you might get 102 answers. And I think we saw an illustration of that today. But one word you'll hear in all of those answers is connectivity. Whether the optimal smart city means you can have a hyper-automatic vehicle pick you up at your door and take you to your place of work within minutes, or if it means you'll know to the minute what time your trash will be picked up in the morning, or a myriad of other exciting, futuristic scenarios, we know that these innovations must also be motivated by the passion for solutions. As Ben Siegel pointed out, part of our job here at Future City, and also part of our job as a collective society, is to ensure that equity, inclusion, and connectivity are as much part of the goal as convenience. Here in Baltimore, we can redefine what it means to be the greatest city in America by also being known as a smart city where everyone is proud to call home. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. We welcome your feedback, and you can contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. My handle is at IamWestmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit WYPR.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Future City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is sponsored by Prudential, helping to turn financial challenges into opportunities for more than 140 years. Prudential stands ready to help. Retirement, investments, insurance, bring your challenges. Future City is also made possible by Janine and Josh Fiddler and supported by the Baltimore Community Foundation, whose vision is that Baltimore boasts a growing economy where all have the opportunity to thrive. <laughs>